Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I just finished talking with Emma Sperry about her new book, Eating the Enlightenment, Food in the Sciences in Paris, 1670 to 1760, that was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now, this is a book about the ways that food and eating and the discourse and engagement around these issues really shaped Enlightenment culture from the late 17th to the early to mid-18th century in Paris. It's a story about changing spaces and attitudes toward natural knowledge in the context of urban life. It's a story about the ways that diet and food become ways of thinking metaphorically about the problems of novelty and transformation in a context where we see the very early stages of capitalism and consumption in um, in Paris in the urban context of the 18th century. There are some major themes that come up in the course of the work and that you'll hear um, some of, you'll actually hear some of them coming up in the course of the conversation. Themes like the way we might understand enlightenment in this context in a new way if we take seriously the body and embodiment as a source of discourse and also everyday life as a really important realm in which natural knowledge was being created and was being debated. Another important theme is that of authority and expertise. So throughout this story, Sperry is talking about the ways that different regimes of authority and expertise from cooks to veterinarians, from doctors to uh, other philosophers like Voltaire, how these different sorts of people are really vying for control over knowledge of bodies and knowledge of eating in this period, among other sorts of natural knowledge that are being produced. The book also shows the ways that culinary writing actually, and in some cases very surprisingly, served very political and polemical purposes within what we might consider the public sphere, the emerging literate culture of 18th century Paris. There are some really interesting methodological contributions that each chapter makes as well, and you'll hear some of these come up over the course of the conversation. Sperry is really trying to ask us to rethink the way we do the history of commodities, the way we do the history of bodily concepts like addiction. And I think she's quite convincing in urging us to uh, change our approaches from one that assumes the stability of objects over time to one that's more informed by the idea of uh, Serre and Latour's contribute or Latour's interpretation of Serre's notion of the quasi-object. Objects is changing. Objects is multiple. Objects is created over time and space. It's a really, really interesting book. It's worth your time. It's worth a read. And I hope you enjoy the conversation we had about it. We're here today to talk with Emma Sperry about her new book, Eating the Enlightenment, Food and the Sciences in Paris, 1670 to 1760. Welcome, Emma, to to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Carla. And I'm very happy to have the chance to talk about the book. So could you start us off as is traditional for this channel by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you into the field of the history of science in the first place? Uh, yes, I had rather an interesting trajectory, as it, as it were. Um, I started out as a scientist 
Um, I was training to be a biological scientist at Cambridge. And one of the things the course offers you is the opportunity to specialize in history of science in your final year. Um, and so I started working on history of science and found that it answered a great many questions that I'd been asking myself throughout the previous two years uh, and found that it was an absolutely wonderful field. It was a very dynamic field at that time and a very exciting area to be working in. And I got completely hooked, so I could never get away from it again. Now, the book at hand, the book that we're talking about, uses eating and food culture as a way to understand how the increasingly public culture of knowledge, and we'll talk about that increasingly public um, nature of this culture, how this culture of knowledge shaped the daily lives of literate Parisians from the late 17th to the mid to late 18th centuries. Can you say a little bit about how this project fits within the larger trajectory of your work? How did you come to focus on this in particular? Sure. Uh, well, I started out for my uh, doctoral work uh, looking at a particular scientific institution, which is one of the most famous institutions of the 18th and early 19th centuries. It's, uh, it was converted into the Muséum d'Histoire Naturelle in 1793 and then became a, a basis for modern scientific practice in the early 19th century. It was emulated around Europe uh, as, a, as a model of what scientific practice ought to be. So I was looking at a very institutional setting, if you like, a very sort of internal setting to the history of science. And when I'd finished that project, I started to get interested in this question of what happened outside the institution. Uh, so really, the whole project was uh, in initially conceived by me as, as a study of uh, how scientific authority was produced outside the institution, which is what most history of science was focusing on up to that the time that I was sort of starting to look at this. And why food and eating culture in particular? Yes, um, partly because in the course of working on natural history, at the Museum d'Histoire Naturelle, I had come across a great many references to foodstuffs. Uh, many of the professors at the museum were particularly interested in either the chemistry of food or food plants that they were interested in introducing from elsewhere in the world. Uh, many of them were uh, participants in a society of agriculture that existed at the time, and as such, they were uh, involved in the introduction of new food plants from outside France. And many of the debates in government in which these naturalists were involved centered on precisely this problem of whether or not French diet was adequate as it stood or whether it should be amended by recourse to scientific expertise. And the naturalists were arguing very strongly for this. So in a sense, that issue struck me as being one which was particularly uh, central to the meaning of science within a public domain at the time. And I, I decided that I'd look at this. I actually initially had plans to look at it uh, all as one story told right from the early 18th century through to the early 19th century before I realized that it was absolutely impossible to do it all in one volume. Uh, so that's really how it came about. I was I was looking for a subject which is about this question of expertise within the public domain, and food struck me as being perhaps the most interesting of those. Right. 
Great. Now, in the prefatory material to the book, you briefly mention that at the same time you were working on this project, there was an emergence of new kinds of research tools in the form of search engines, digital media, um, and that this shaped the research for the book in certain ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did this emergence of these kinds of digital resources shape the kinds of research that you did for the book, and in what ways may this have ultimately shaped the story uh, that you decided to tell in the book? Well, I must say, I have the sense that um, one couldn't have done the project that I did without these sorts of resources. Uh, I started doing the research really at just the time when, when these kinds of tools were, were becoming available. And the, the, the main one, the one which I suppose is most memorable, made me realize how much you could get from these kinds of resources, was the um, digitization of the whole of the encyclopédie. Now, if you can imagine, this is a, a multi-volume work um, published over over more than 20 years. And it means that if um, you were to try and look up articles in the encyclopedia about diet, eating and food, you would spend so long. I mean, you could practically write one book entirely on that topic. And, and some people have written quite extensively on that topic. But for me, I mean, I wanted to trawl very widely through the literature that was available for people to read. And I knew that the Encyclopédie was one of the most widely read works in the period. And so uh, I made use of it, um, of the digitization but, and the search tools that were, were available from um, Artful, from the University of Chicago, which, is, which was responsible for that project. Uh, and I was able to track down particular terms that interested me and follow them through a succession of articles in the Encyclopédie. Now, I think that would have been a, an absolutely impossible nightmare task if I'd had to sit there leafing through the individual volumes of the book. But as it was, I was able to call up a list of, you know, 51 occurrences or whatever within the Encyclopédie of some, some individual word, which meant that I, I not only looked at terms that were being defined in the keyword in the heading of the entry, such as foodstuffs. But I could also look at what other entries were saying about foodstuffs all the way through the entire uh, work itself. So it's that kind of thing that the fact that it speeded up research massively, that make, makes me feel that really I couldn't have done this project without recourse to that sort of material. I think in another way, um, it was just the ability to use the online um, catalogues of various very large libraries so that I was able to get a pretty good grasp on what kinds of things were being published about food over a longer period. So I ended up, I mean, I started out with these most enormous bibliographies and I had to work from there and sort of navigate my way through this mass of literature. But I think if I'd had to build up the bibliographies in the traditional way, I never could have finished. So, <laughs> Right. I mean, this actually sounds really... Um familiar coming from the field of Chinese history right now, which is what I yeah. work in um, and where digital media are absolutely central to the kind of work that we do and have really reshaped the kinds of narratives that are coming out of the field as a result of the specific kind of epistemic features of these search tools and the ways that they reshape the kinds of questions that we ask. I think I know um, for me in particular, one of the things that often happens, and I know um, many of my colleagues in Chinese history uh, also experience this, is you start out um, in these uh, using these searchable databases 
with a list of terms or with a, an idea of what kinds of terms are going to be important and you do your searches. And then in the course of that, you realize that there are discourses that are related or even central to the phenomena that you're interested in that you that you wouldn't have thought to search for that create other kinds of searches. And this sort of is a feedback thing. So that leads me to wonder now that I'm hearing you um, talk about your own experience with this, what terms initially, or were there any terms or there, were there any moments in this um, kind of series of search processes where you realize that certain kinds of terms or certain kinds of discourses were actually central to the story in surprising ways? Were there any major surprises that came out of this kind of feedback search methodology for you? Yes, I think in a way, um, one of the things that, that came out of it was the emphasis on the tongue. Um, and that turned out to be a very interesting avenue to follow uh, because, of course, I was looking up more general words like food and so on. I wasn't really looking at anatomy at that point at all. I knew that um, some historians like Anne Weiler had worked on the stomach. Um, but I started to find that there were lots of references to flavor, to taste in connection with the tongue. And then the more I looked into that literature, the more I found a sort of continuity of models of how the tongue worked over quite a long period of time. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of more basic level. I think there are other sorts of terms um, which, where I became interested in particular foodstuffs because they seem to be a sort of focal point for lots of discussion about the uh, significance of eating, of diet, of cuisine. Um, liqueurs was another one. Um, perhaps a less less striking example for me. I do remember that that sort of feeling of discovering that I was falling into a whole new category of analysis when I when I started looking at the question of the tongue. This is we could have like a three hour long conversation about this because this is you're mentioning the tongue. Um, this this is something that I've also recently started looking at in the context of Chinese texts, and it really doing this kind of search lets you bring together kinds of discourses that don't from the outset seem to have anything to do with the history of science, right? You could bring in opera, you could bring in phonology. Um, and in the case of this actually um, leads us really nicely to the book at hand, because in the case of your book, one of the things that you are um, arguing in the book and that you're making clear is that a focus on food and eating in this period allows us to bring into the general, um, or at least this is what I as a reader got out of this allows us to bring into the general narrative of the history of science and of enlightenment science in particular voices and areas of expertise that don't ordinarily come into the story. Everyday life, discourses of embodiment, kinds of expertise that are coming out of cafes, that are coming out of cookbooks. These all become part of the story when you start reframing the questions to look for these kinds of issues that don't otherwise seem to be relevant, right? Yes, yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad that's what came out of the book. Um, that's one of the things I hoped, certainly one of the big issues I hoped would come out of the book. Um, I, and I think you're absolutely right that, that this sort of approach uh, does tend to prompt one in an interdisciplinary direction very much in, in historical terms. Um, so one's no longer looking at the traditional categories, the traditional boundaries uh, that have structured the history of science very much. But um, in fact, you start to find that there are people talking about these issues all around um, different fields. And what's more interesting, I think, for me anyway, is that um, I then began to discover that these people could be followed from one arena to another so that 
whereas historians of science might know them as a particular physician or the discoverer of some chemical law. If you actually started to follow these people around according to what they were saying about food and diet, you would start finding them popping up in places like uh, satire or novels or um, not so much art history perhaps, but, but certainly moving between domains of learning that we would not necessarily think of as being connected from our vantage point. And that's very striking. It's something that, that's sort of obvious if you think about the, the sort of polymathic quality of people's uh, knowledge in the 18th century. But at the same time, I think historians of science certainly had not really fully taken on board the implications of that, that kind of claim. So as we move into the book itself, the introduction really sets out some of these major themes that are going to recur as tropes throughout the book and as important um, points or fulcrum points that allow you and that allow us as readers to see um, ways in which this particular set of cases really allows us to rethink not just uh, Paris in this period, not just the 18th century, but really the kinds of approaches that are typically taken to commodity histories, to stimulant histories, and to the histories of science more generally. So some of the major themes that come up here are issues that we've already briefly touched on and that we'll come back to. Um, the Enlightenment. So you're really tr it seems that you're really trying to reconfigure the way we think about Enlightenment science in the book by understanding it in terms of not just the production and circulation of written materials, but by also understanding it as a work in progress and something that um, people of all walks of life could aspire to. You're also raising um, a major theme, and again, we'll come back to this, of authority and expertise. So the book looks at how authoritative knowledge about food and eating and digestion in the body really looking at the constitution of that knowledge takes us into these really interesting cases in which we can see social and epistemic or epistemological authority being produced in the public domain. And perhaps this last part of that sentence, the public, becomes another touchstone for what we'll be talking about later in the book. So as we move into uh, the, the body chapters, we move into this story and it really, pun intended, it gets fleshed out and sort of flesh gets <laughs> put on the bones. So food yeah. gets put into the stomach. So chapter one sets up an opposition that we're going to see recurring throughout the book and really recurring throughout this period under study. This opposition between culinary skill and courtly luxury is how I think you put it, between sobriety and reform. In this chapter, digestion becomes a main space in which, as you put it, matter and mind come together in this period of the long 18th century. Now, important in the early stages of this chapter, and something that will continue to become important as a touchstone later on, is the notion of iatrochemical models of the body. Can you start us off by saying a little bit about this? Because this is something that listeners may not, um, listeners who don't know anything about the history of chemistry may not be familiar with. Why, what are iatrochemical models of the body in this context in the sense that they're important to the larger story that this chapter is telling and the kinds of negotiations among different ways of understanding the body that really emerge in this early context of the story? Okay, well, um, I, there are two ways of answering that. One is to talk in very general terms um, about iatrochemistry as being essentially a uh, version of medicine in which the emphasis was placed upon chemical explanations of the body and therefore also upon chemical treatments for 
illnesses. Um, and that's very much what the people I'm looking at were doing. Um, on the other hand, we can also sort of un explain what this is in a much more local and even political sense, which is sort of what I try to do in the book, um, by saying that uh, there was a rather complex history uh, of um, developments in iatrochemistry in France, uh, in which at first, in the 17th century, iatrochemistry was not accepted within the medical faculty at all. And over the period that the book is considering, it starts in 1675, iatrochemistry was starting to enter the institutions and even enter the faculty of medicine in Paris, where it gained an increasing amount of power. And from the point of view of its opponents, iatrochemical medicine was problematic because it was much more associated with court, with courtly life, with the crown in particular. Uh, and from leading on from that, uh, this meant that iatrochemistry became, became the sort of model of ex explaining digestion, which was allied by critics with uh, courtly knowledge, with courtly understandings of cuisine. And if you look at the, the whole of the culinary literature, pretty much, um, in the early 18th century, an enormous amount of it rests quite clearly on chemical models of what's going on. Uh, there's a famous dictionary of foodstuffs uh, published in 1701 um, by Louis Lemery. And that is a, a, a work which goes through all foodstuffs that were commonly used and explains them in terms of chemistry. Very much an iatrochemical publication, in fact. So what, one of the things that happens in, in chapter one is that I look at the extent to which iatrochemistry was pitted against another model of medicine, which was much more concerned with reform and was very critical of crown agendas for the body. So can you talk a little bit about this, um, this alternative? Because this brings us uh, discussions of alternatives to a primarily chemical mode of understanding digestion really brings us into a really interesting space in which we see medicine playing a role in debates that might otherwise be characterized as religious, which is really interesting. Yes, uh, one thing to, to uh, bear in mind here is that for this period, as yet there was no completely clear-cut distinction between medicine and religion. That's something which historians have shown happens quite a bit later in the century. It's a very sort of gradual process, but it's, it's clearly evident by the end of the 18th century. So in this period, medicine was still often portrayed as having a religious function. I think actually it works on three levels, on, uh, at the level of, of medical knowledge, at the level of politics, because the people who were the opponents of the atrochemists were very much opposed to the status quo, to the government of, of um, Louis XIV, and also at the religious level, in, uh, uh, in as much as the book shows that the people who were opponents of iatrochemistry were um, associated often with um, Jansenism, which is a particular uh, religious reform group. Uh, operating in the late 17th and, and 18th centuries. Now, these opponents, I mean, I, I refer to them as iatromechanists. It's a, a general term, really, but um, it does fairly accurately characterize uh, uh, what sorts of characteristics their account of digestion had. Uh, they were concerned to explain digestion purely in terms of movement and matter. 
They weren't interested in chemical reactions. They weren't interested in acid alkalis. They weren't interested in fermentation or any of the phenomena that iatrochemists were particularly concerned with. Instead, they were interested in explaining the digestion and assimilation of foodstuffs purely in terms of a sort of mechanical process of breakdown and assimilation. And they called it um, trituration. Great. Now, what this chapter does, thats or a, a couple of the things that this chapter does um, that are really important for really the larger kind of work that the book is doing, is you're showing the embodiment of Enlightenment discourse. So you're really making a very clear case here for situating transformations in natural knowledge within the body and within discourses about the body. And you're also showing these in these early stages of the book, the ways that controversies over food and over digestion in particular, involve these kinds of power struggles about uh, over the authority of knowledge making that we're going to see coming up in uh, later chapters and in later contexts of this story. There's also a great set piece of um, Réaumur, and this is an example that I, I warned for listeners, I warned Emma um, at the beginning of this conversation about something that you will know well about me, which is that, although it often goes unremarked, I horribly mispronounce names all over the place, and especially French names. So you can consider yourself warned uh, for later on in this interview. But Réalmur, force-feeding metal and glass to birds, which is um, just a really interesting set piece in itself. Yes, I, I mean, actually, that, that, those experiments are fairly well known, and they feature in the sort of traditional history of digestion uh, as one of the main sets of experiments which finally proved that it was a, a chemical principle which dissolved foods in the stomach and not the mechanical process of trituration. What's particularly interesting from the point of view of the story that I was telling was finding very close links in terms of timing and, and um, as it were, area of interest to the uh, debate over uh, mechanism versus chemistry, Jansenism versus Roman Catholicism. Uh, and I was finding uh, ties that suggested very much that, that the experiments of Réaumur and indeed of others that I talk about in the book were specifically a response that was intended uh, for political reasons to refute the perspective of the iatro mechanists about about uh, digestion. So this is not just a question of putting down a theory. It's actually much more a question about which political version, version of knowledge is going to prevail and how the body can be accounted for. What I think is really interesting, especially given what we know about the way that Jansenism developed and unfolded, moving away from the religious and towards the political over the early 18th century in France, is that actually the chemical, uh, chemical explanation didn't completely win. Because if you look at the end of the period I'm looking at, there were still lots of people who were maintaining that a combination of mechanical and chemical processes ended up destroying food structure and helping it to be assimilated within the body. And we still really do have that model, in fact. So this story that we have in traditional histories of how digestion uh, was discovered, quote unquote, uh, is really a story that doesn't actually fit what what happened, um, because what happened was that there was a sort of assimilation of the two the two models. Great. Now, as we move into um, from 
digestion into the later chapters, we come to two chapters that focus on coffee. Coffee, as you tell us in the book, enters scholarship between 1670, which marks the visit to Paris of the Ottoman ambassador to that capital, and 1730, which is the the decade by which coffee had become an everyday substance in Paris, which is a transformation from its initial kind of epistemic being, which was as a rare exotic commodity. Now, the period here marks a turning point, as you um, as you tell us in the book, in the relationship between France and the Levant, especially in terms of commercial relations. Can you say a little bit about that? Because it, it becomes important uh, throughout the story of coffee in the book. Yes, um, I discovered once I started looking in detail at uh, the literature on coffee that there was a reversal of trade. Uh, and that's that's a term that that I actually take from the, the work of another historian, um, Carrère. What's rather interesting is that if you look at the situation in 1670 or so, um, as coffee began to become a fashionable drink in Paris, the coffee that was reaching France was all coming from the east. It was all being imported either uh, over the, um, the sort of Red Sea Mediterranean area. Uh, collected in Cairo, for example, by trading ships from Marseille and imported back to France to Marseille, or it was coming overland from Armenia, Syria, and so on, where where coffee was already being drunk because they were parts of the Ottoman Empire. Then, at a certain point, between then and 1730, there's an effective shift, and that shift coincides completely with the rise of colonial cultivation. So once the French began to start up colonies, first in the Mascarene Islands and then in the Antilles, they started almost immediately to grow coffee. That was one of the first crops that was grown in these plantation, new plantation economies. And within a very short time, they were producing so much coffee that they actually began to export it, not only back to Europe, but in fact, by 1750, they were net exporters of coffee to the Ottoman Empire itself, which, of course, was also a big market for coffee. So one of the things we're seeing, and this is part of a bigger picture, I think, is the extent to which the Ottoman Empire in the late 17th century looked to the French crown like a formidable force that had to be reckoned with, particularly in trading terms. They were desperate to enter that Ottoman market, as it were. Um, But actually, what they didn't know, of course, was that um, the Ottoman Empire was declining very much in political terms. So within just a few decades, it didn't, it was no longer a force that needed to be reckoned with. And the French were able to turn their attentions towards a very different sort of maritime trade, which was centered on colonies, which is what you see as typical of the 18th century. So that's, that's basically the, the picture of what happens is a, is a sort of shift in not only in the direction of flow, but also in the, the geographical pattern of trade, where formerly trade is all about the old world trade networks between the Mediterranean, the, the Middle East, and so on, or the Far East and Europe. By around 1730 to 1750, it was much more important that there was this Atlantic relationship and Atlantic colonies that could be um, made use of in, in new sorts of ways. 
Great. Now, over the course of this chapter, you show us the ways that coffee was thought to stimulate the mind. You show us the ways that coffee became um, imbricated in a discourse about novelty. And you also show how the agency of experts becomes aligned with the interests of, as you put it, an increasingly centralized crown administration. So politics becomes really important here. Different sorts of claims of expertise made public knowledge over this new substance. And these claims of expertise are embodied in a series of three networks that are described in this chapter. So before we go into um, one of those networks in particular, can you say a little bit about the decision here? Because you explicitly remark upon it in this chapter to understand this coffee history in terms of a sociological model of networks to understand, in particular, the transformation of expertise in this context? Well, the background to this is that the uh, the literature on coffee uh, is very much written about, um, the, the literature from the 17th and, and 18th centuries. Um, almost every source has, has been lovingly collected together and documented. But the sort of history that's been written about it is really very unanalytical um, and it tends to be just a case of people listing these these various sources as if they were simply some kind of uh, I don't know treasure chest out of which we could fish a particular story or anecdote that would fit our stories of, of how coffee entered um, French culture and what I wanted to do was something rather different and this comes very much both from my training as a historian of science and from my interest as a cultural historian of 18th century France in book history and that was to try to look more at the circumstances of writing and publication of these sorts of works and tie them to their authors and then the authors to the sorts of people the sorts of societies with whom they were uh, engaging in the period that the, the, the work was written. And that's effectively what I did. I, I tried, first of all, to collect together as many of the sorts of primary materials that were written about coffee in the period that I was interested in as possible, and then to start to place them in relation to one another, in relation to the authors. And, of course, there was a fair bit written about all the authors of these pieces. Um, a lot of it was actually written uh, not specifically about their writing of, of work on coffee, but rather because of their involvement in other sorts of activities like antiquarianism or literature. And so I started to be drawn outwards into these this, these structures of um, the world of philology, say, or the world of antiquarianism, which I hadn't really thought of as being part of the project until that time, but which clearly then became rather central to it. Uh, I started to find, for example, that coffee was a subject that was written about as a particular sort of uh, academic curiosity in the circum in in the connect in connection with a particular network of. of um, uh, of antiquarians and orientalists that was developing from the 1660s onwards and about which indeed a fair amount has been written. So, I mean, the network's model does certainly come from the sociology of science. Um, it, it comes from my own interest in, in this issue. In, in my previous book, uh, Utopia's Garden, I'd written extensively about the correspondence network of a botanist called André Toin. Uh, and I was taking that model of networks, which originates with actor network theory, exemplified by people like Bruno Latour and John Law and Michel Callon. And I was using it here as a fruitful way of, of trying to sort of 
produce a new picture of what was going on, why people wrote about coffee, why they were interested in coffee, and what effect their writings might have had on the circle of people with whom they associated most closely. And the networks described, or the three central networks described here, are not just the what you call the Oriental Network, which um, was the space for this negotiation of coffee in terms of philology and antiquarianism, as you mentioned, but also an Indian Ocean Network, where closer ties, as you're showing here, between the crown and the colonies created new opportunities for scholars, metropolitan scholars in particular, to insert themselves into the coffee trade. And then finally, an American network. And this is actually kind of interesting interesting and surprising from the perspective of a historian of science because you're showing in describing this network that at the beginning, botanists actually had very little to do with the coffee trade, even though they've been kind of talked about as, you know, one of the central parts of what we typically understand when we understand the history of coffee in this period is in terms of uh, botany and natural history. So that's actually, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that last part of the story and how we understand botanists in this context is sort of an interesting surprise for a historian of natural history. Yes, well, I can tell you it came as a surprise for me as well. (laughs) Uh, partly because, of course, the source for many of these stories about coffee is being associated from the start with the natural history garden in Paris was exactly um, the natural history garden. And it's it's um, various, uh, uh, as it were, um, scientific practitioners. In fact, it turns out that the same person on, on whom I'd worked, André Trois, was responsible for one of the big myths that coffee from its inception had always been a product of the botanical activities of the members of the um, the Natural History Garden in Paris. Uh, and so, yes, at, at first, I suppose I wasn't even thinking along those lines at all. But I, uh, one of the people in whom I was interested, up close, as it were, was the person who'd actually had to describe coffee to the Académie des Sciences, uh, Antoine de Jussieu, who was the professor of botany. He actually died in the 1750s, so he and Antoine never overlapped. Uh, but at the same time, he was very much, he was an iatrochemist, very much in favor of coffee as a sort of miracle drug. I mean, the way he, he writes about it and talks about it, um, it's, he almost seems to have represented it as some kind of extraordinary drug um, uh, with, with marvelous powers. So he, he worked very hard to obtain specimens of the coffee plant, and he also worked very hard to uh, be able to cultivate them. But in fact, what my research showed was that he was rather late to the party. I mean, he kept trying to get hold of, of coffee and, and didn't succeed until about three years or so after the, uh, um, the um, colonists, the, admin- the colonial administrators in the masculines had already started growing it as a colonial crop. Uh, and one of the reasons in the book I, I suggest uh, is, is behind this is that there wasn't really very much contact between people like Antoine de Jussieu, who are essentially crown employees working at the Natural History Garden, and the Compagnie des Andes, which was a separate corporation that had its own um, uh, systems of communication. Um, they wouldn't have had very much to do with de Jussieu. And 
But what, one of the things the Crown actually ended up doing was brokering between these botanists and the Compagnie des Indes and other trading initiatives to put the botanists more centrally in the picture. So in a way, turning the story around like that actually helped a lot in understanding what it was that was going on um, in relationship to botanical authority in this period. Um, in fact, one of my next projects, I hope, is going to be to follow that up a little bit more. Oh, great. We'll look forward to that, too. So as, as we move into the next chapter, you focus on the space of the cafe and the, you focus in particular on the cafe as a, an important space for urban consumption and production of food knowledge, and as, also as a space for intellectual sociability for many different kinds of people and as a space of innovation. Now, there are two things in particular that are um, very notable about the, the way that the story unfolds here. One of them is something that comes out from the very beginning of the book and that I gestured to Toward, I think at the very beginning of our conversation, and this is the importance of the notion of a public or publics in the context of the work here. Can you talk a little bit about your um, decision to frame this story in terms of a Habermasian public sphere? Was this something that um, you decided to do in response to the way we uh, basically extant literature on cafes, or was this something that emerged out of the research process in a way that surprised you? Uh, well, uh, one of the one of the areas of the history of coffee houses that has been written about extensively was their role. Precisely, I mean, they're one of the sort of key sites for for the Habermasian public sphere, along with salons, for example. Uh, and so, in terms of the secondary literature, there was quite a lot already about cafe, the importance of cafes, alongside the importance of salons, masonic lodges, other settings where people could foregather. Uh, I, I'm not saying that I necessarily wanted only to to stick to that model. And of course, having worked on the French Revolution, I was, I was quite aware of the fact that a lot of historians have, have said that the, the difference between public and private didn't lie exactly in the same sort of area that, that we now consider it should do during the course of the 18th century. And it was only with the French Revolution that, that new notions of the public as a political space emerged. So in a way, I wasn't terribly surprised to find that these cafes were not necessarily sites for public, but for political engagement in the traditional sense. There were one or two, and they're quite well documented, one or two cases where the, a cafe was regarded as having a particularly important role in in political commentary, but on the whole, because of the way the Crown attempted to police these sorts of spaces, there were not many cafes that were, which were free sites of political discussion in the way that the coffee houses were in London. Um, that did happen, but not until the 1780s, my research started to find. So I was quite interested in the sorts of role um, that the cafes might play, which um, seemed to be about uh, their role as a meeting place for people from different social backgrounds. Because one of the really striking things about the whole of the 18th century in France is this formation of a, a literate elite in which there's no very sharp distinction between the nobility and the commoners who are nevertheless educated and conversant with the rules of polite society. So I think that from, for me, the most 
exciting thing was was actually not so much the, the the role of the public as such, but rather the fact that it was possible to point to a relatively homogeneous, polite society that used spaces like cafes to encounter others, to discuss things, and also use print, of course, as a medium for communicating. Uh, I'm very much on the side of historians like, say, Sarah Marza, uh, in, in this circumstance, who in looking at the, the concept of the bourgeoisie in, in France has argued very, very convincingly, I think, that um, you simply can't see a clear-cut attempt by people who are non-noble to differentiate themselves from the nobility. Every piece of evidence we have pretty much points to the fact that people were trying to be more like the nobility for all sorts of reasons. And if we understand the nobility is, in a sense, continuous with that courtly culture as well, we can see how really the cafes became a site at which uh, the the status quo in political terms was being fostered and supported. And that was exactly what my research showed, that while cafes allowed much more social mixing than one might have expected in the previous century, at the same time, they were still really not sites of subversion in any political sense. So one had a public, one had a public which even was was political in a certain respect, but it wasn't an overtly political public. And that, that's, that's the, the sort of angle that I, I, I felt emerged out of this, this research. But I have to say that I would have loved to have managed to do more work on individual cafes. I suspect there's still a huge amount of material in the archive out there that people can have a lot of fun with, but it's very hard to get hold of. <laughs> One of the really fascinating things um, that emerges out of this discussion of cafes is your treatment of satire as a form of natural knowledge. Can you talk about this briefly in terms of the work it does for our history of coffee and also for the way we think about eating in um, the context of natural knowledge making in this period more generally? Yes, I think, in fact, that the two questions are similar because it, uh, satire was by no means specific to coffee at all. In fact, in some ways, um, it was almost associated more with, with things like liqueurs, which I argue were very much um, drunk in, in, the, in the cafes as well. Um, but uh, I, I came to it really almost accidentally because I kept finding that almost every source that was written about cuisine or individual foodstuffs was written in a in a ludic way, uh, in a subversive way, a playful way, and that meant that uh, people were not really looking at food as a subject that could be taken seriously in learned terms. And this was very clear in 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 this this chapter, chapter three, because um, one of the one of the debates it centres on is the debate between Oudard de la Motte, um, one of the leading poets of the Académie Française. And um, Madame Dacier. Madame Dacier was an old-style philologist who who uh, adhered to very strong views about accurate translation. And Oudard Lamotte had some very um, innovative views about the function of poetry, that it should be basically a sort of rational poetry. He claimed it didn't have to rhyme um, and that it should be about communicating with a very particular tasteful, polite audience. And he and Dacier were at loggerheads over what the project of learning and, and belles lettres was supposed to be about. And in, ultimately, Dacier accused him of, of behaving like uh, somebody who belonged in a cafe, that is to say, somebody straight off the street. So this space, the cafe, was really very problematic for learning in that sense. 
Now, as we move um, further into the book and into the chapters, you also look at um, the production of liqueurs and of novel liqueurs in particular in the space of um, the, we're in the context of understanding the space of the Parisian cafe as a chemical laboratory and as a space where different forms of knowledge between, uh, or ways of knowing between academic and non-academic chemists came together as these two communities vied for authority. It's a really, really interesting discussion. And I want to ask you though about um, one aspect of this discussion in particular. Now, this chapter, um, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the chapter, takes on other authors for using anachronistic categories like alcohol and stimulants in their commodity histories. And this very much echoes something that will happen at the end of the next chapter, where you're also urging us to rethink categories um, that are uh, in, or that are characteristic of the way histories of corporeal taste have typically been written. And, and you challenge the ways that much of the history of food and eating um, sort of takes for granted certain categories that are inherent in our contemporary ideas about human biology and uses them anachronistically. So I'd love if you could talk um, somewhat about this, because this seems to be a really important conceptual uh, contribution to the way we understand the history of science and of commodities you're making here. You're challenging two assumptions in particular, and um, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this. The assumption that foodstuffs or categories like addiction, categories like alcohol, translate readily into our categories today, and the assumption that accounts of a foodstuff are univocal, so that there's one object that we can unproblematically trace through time, rather than understanding it as a series of situated meanings. So can you talk about these issues just for a little bit? Yes, I'll start with the question of foodstuffs being univocal, because I think that's that, that sort of prior to the question of addiction in some ways. Um, and, of course, the, the very striking thing is that, um, or, or was at the time that I was writing <laughs> the book, I should say, but, um, uh, there was a literature that was emerging which was attracting a great deal of attention um, and in which foodstuffs were being, or indeed any any kind of consumed natural substance was being presented as something uh, which could be, whose history could be told as a single story, a single narrative that um, might, as it were, undergo alterations over time, but wouldn't really be contested. Um, it, in a way, there's some history to this, which is that I had been working on the history of the nutmeg, the, the introduction of the nutmeg um, to French colonies. And I had discovered that there was actually absolutely no agreement about what the nutmeg actually was and whether you should define it on the basis of its flavor, its appearance, its botanical characteristics. You simply couldn't find two accounts that agreed upon it. And that meant that the moment at which the nutmeg was actually imported to the French colonies still is kind of open. It can't really be demonstrated because um, how what date you set on it depends on wh which version of events you take. This made me quite aware of the fact that um, commodity histories were basically being written from the winner's standpoint. That is to say that they were written as if um, the unitary category that was imposed retrospectively upon this foodstuff was actually the one that had been right all along. Now, as a historian of science, of course, any any sort of winner's history kind of gets gets my back up. And, and I was um, thinking about this in different sorts of ways and trying instead to tease out the sorts of conflicts and tensions that could be seen over particular foods. 
partly on, on a sort of methodological principle that it's precisely in the articulation of those controversies and conflicts that we can start to see the politics of food and eating. Um, so that is one reason why that particular maneuver was and is extremely important to me, to start to understand how a particular food could be to, could be interpreted as a symbol or, or as having nutritional value in utterly different ways by different constituencies at the same time is to start to unpick why foods acquire particular meanings, uh, which, of course, as we know, change over time. So I was very interested in, in how that change actually occurred, who won and how they won. And this is to come back to one of the points you raised a, a few minutes ago. Then secondly, that the question of addiction um, and this is really related to, you mentioned alcohol. Um, I mean, what, what I really hadn't realized until I started working on this, this topic was actually that alcohol throughout the period up to 1760 in France meant a very fine powder or substance. It didn't, wasn't used in relation to what we think of as alcohol at all. And this meant that almost the entire historiography on the question of alcohol drinking and temperance, which depended on the notion that certain drinks had things in common because they contain alcohol, couldn't possibly be using contemporary categories, actors' categories, because actors didn't see wine, beer, and spirits as occupying the same epistemological space, if we see what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that point of view, I started to wonder instead about um, if, if you couldn't point to some sort of chemical essence that was in these substances as the cause for their addictive power, which is what the, the histories of temperance seem to be arguing was the case, then what on earth was it? What, what was addiction? Um, the source that everybody pointed to was Thomas Trotter's uh, account of uh, drunkenness, which is isn't edited by the, the famous social historian of medicine, Roy Porter. But of course, I knew from the work that I was doing that the sorts of claims that Trotter was making were very, very standard about 30 years before the time that he was writing, which is in the, the 1780s. So I started to think that actually it was quite important to the story that I was telling to have some kind of account of how and why uh, addiction could happen. And of course, this again, this had to be more of a historicist account. So I was quite interested in exactly what happened uh, what kinds of accounts people could give for why people became dependent on particular substances that they ate and drank. Great, thank you. And another um, really interesting kind of work that this chapter does as we move to um, the final parts of the book is that you're also showing the way that what we might think of as a particularly stable category or concept, that of delicacy, also transformed in this time. And you show the ways that it changed from something to aspire to, something associated with distinction, with taste, with sort of social, high social status, to something that becomes associated with physical, political, and national weakness. And so that's another example of the ways that um, these categories and understandings of them are really rooted very locally in this period and change over time in the course of the history that you're showing us here. Now, another um, really interesting thing that comes up later in this chapter, or later, later in the book, and this is something that 
um, I want to sort of move to so we can talk about this a bit. You're using really interesting kinds of sources here. Um, chapter five looks at and interprets cookbooks as a form of literature, really as a form of uh, social commentary. Um, in a way, we might think of it um, that way. And you're using it as a, a kind of historical source to tell a different kind of story than I think many of us have seen cookbooks used to tell. You're also in chapter six um, using correspondence and diaries and medical consultations to add a different perspective to this story and to flesh it out in ways um, that might not be possible using other kinds of sources. So can you speak um, for, for a moment or for as many moments as you'd like to what's happening in chapter six, where you're looking at um, conflicting views over the relationships between appetite, reason, and health among literate consumers who at this point uh, could choose among many different models of food, eating, and the body that were being presented by many different kinds of communities that were, again, vying for authority and control over this discourse. In this context, how does reading uh, letters and correspondence and diaries and these medical consultations allow you to tell the story that you told in this chapter? How do those sources shape the story that happens here? Well, actually, we're incredibly fortunate um, in that for many uh, members of the French elite, of uh, French polite society, in the middle decades of the 18th century, it became fashionable to uh, consult with a particular physician by correspondence. And these were famous physicians, so they tended to get a lot of people writing to them. The, the two people I looked at in particular were both in Switzerland. There was um, uh, Théodore Tranchin, who was a Genevan, and there was um, Samuel-André Tissot, who was from Berne, from Lausanne. Um, two separate cantons, both of them from families which had been excluded from France by the uh, policies of Louis XIV. So in a strange way, the end of the story is really about the legacy that the, um, that the opposition to crown, the crown, had over those decades of the 18th century. Because um, what these physicians recommended to their clients was a particular body politics, if you like. It wasn't just about what they ate. It was to a very great extent about um, how they viewed the body and how they that they could use um, forms of um, bodily practice to make themselves into better political citizens. And this comes out particularly clearly from the writings of Tissot, who was very close to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, another Swiss Protestant, um, in his case from Geneva. Now, of course, the Swiss... The Swiss were by no means united, but for the purposes of polemics, the people whom they treated like to view um, the Swiss as having these ideal political societies, um, mostly small republics, um, very autonomous, and in which people were, were individual, uh, autonomous, responsible political citizens. Um, so in some way, Opting for a Swiss physician was also to an extent to opt for a particular kind of opposition to the status quo. It was to turn your back on iatrochemistry, which is still the prevailing medical doctrine by 1750 in Paris. And it was to look to um, a medical doctrine which instead emphasized things like exercise, the strong body, um, uh, natural foods rather than artificially jazzed up foods. I mentioned earlier that there was a close association between cuisine um, 
uh, iatrochemistry and courtly life. So in some way, the rejection of nouvelle cuisine, which a lot of these medical clients um, undertook in the middle decades of the 18th century, was also a rejection of courtly politics. Now, why, how did I come to the, well, first of all, the correspondence was there. But secondly, I mean, the project, as I had structured it, really drove looking at those correspondences to a great extent from the very beginning. Uh, because what I was interested in was what consumers would actually do when confronted by a whole range of different options for health care, care of the self, diet, and so on. Because, I mean, the, the, the key thing that one, one needs to bear in mind is that essentially everyone is, counts as an expert. Um, why do we therefore take on any sort of, uh, a, why do we accept any outside advice as to what we eat? Why don't we just eat what we like, what, what tastes good? There are all kinds of sources. There were in the 18th century also all kinds of sources to tell us what would be a good idea um, to eat. And in the case of these French medical clients, um, their correspondence actually specifically set out the types of decisions they were making, the basis for the decisions that they were making about what to eat or what not to eat. Sometimes they accepted medical advice, sometimes they rejected it. It turned out that quite a lot of the time they were reading medical literature, sort of self-help guides as a kind of programmatic way, a way of structuring their lives, their, their bodily lives in particular. Um, and in the course of that, they were also quite often taking on these political claims about the healthy body, the robust body, which were becoming current in the 1750s and 60s. So in lots of ways, um, that correspondence was an absolute goldmine because, you know, that kind of, um, those kinds of statements about the self are extremely hard to come across. There's not much in the book about how consumers saw these issues, partly because there just isn't any record that comes directly from the consumers. But in this case, one had a huge collection of, of letters, which again were digitized, um, and um, it was possible to look at them as a sort of self-narration, accounts of why people decided to eat certain things or not eat certain things. So it was less the fact that they were about medicine and more that they were about how people weighed medical advice as against personal taste, family recommendations, habits, um, other sorts of advice from, from different individuals that they might encounter. One person took advice from a vet, for example. <laughs> So what to eat. Um, so yes, I mean, in, in other words, I was, I, I think I see that chapter as kind of bringing together the ends of the project, both the sort of political aspect of it, and also this question about the micro politics, about the individual consumer as, as expert and as decision maker in the face of all these forms of competing uh, expertise. Because ultimately, you know, a rule only works if people actually obey it. Um, and in this case, I had material which actually showed under what circumstances people decided to make decisions to obey medical advice about diet. Well, Emma, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. As um, is probably <laughs> as is probably obvious to listeners and is certainly um, very clear to me, the book is exceptionally rich and there's a ton of material um, and, and really a ton of questions and um, methodological contributions that you're making in, in each chapter, really, that we didn't have time to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't, uh, that, that didn't come up in our conversation, but that you'd like to mention or point out for listeners, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um, 
Gosh, well, that, that's um, a, a difficult one to answer. I think I, I want to urge them to read the book, of course. <laughs> I suppose ultimately, yes, I, I'd like to just briefly come back to what you were saying earlier on uh, about um, this being a new way of, of reading cuisine, because I think in some ways the whole project does rest on on almost perversely rereading some of the sources about which we already know a great deal. And partly also on a sort of disciplinary cross-fertilization that's, that's going on between history of science and cultural history. Um, ultimately, though, it, it sort of rests on its on its um, merits and on the, the value of its its accounts. So I, I hope that people will enjoy it. <laughs> I look forward to comments, really. But... So now that the book is out, and, um, and congratulations on the publication of this book, what's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you at the moment, or projects? Well, um, I think I mentioned at the start that this was originally conceived as part of a very big single project. Um, and uh, so eventually my publisher said, you must split this up. We can't possibly publish something this mammoth. You know, I, I visions of telling the whole of the 18th century um, and it was not to be. So I did split it up. And in fact, what I'm absolutely at this very moment finishing off is a book which covers the story of the rise of alimentary chemistry in France from 1760 to 1815 uh, in relation to the earliest, earliest industrialized foods, uh, which included things like gelatine, beet sugar and starch. Um, and that's heavily archive based. Uh, and in lots of ways, it's an attempt again to sort of rewrite what we think of as the history of the industrialization of food, the history of um, uh, consumption in the light of these sorts of stories that one can tell going through the French revolutionary period. So if you, if you like eating the enlightenment, I hope you'll like the next one, but I'm still struggling to think of a title, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> I can't tell you what that's going to be. Well, wonderful. Well, best of luck with the new project. And again, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.